I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and this is the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. Each month, the podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who've established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. On today's program, Dr. Sarah Kaufman talks about her new book, American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. Dr. Kaufman is an associate professor of sociology and anthropology at Trinity University. She worked as a mitigation specialist in New Orleans during the late 1990s, helping secure reduced sentences for low-income capital murder defendants. American Roulette is the first systematic ethnography of death penalty trials in the United States. Let's listen now as Dr. Kaufman and Trinity alumna Faith Deckard, who served as a research assistant for the book, dive into capital courtrooms across the country. Their book begins with an irony of sorts. Murderers, who seem to be the most morally despicable, are not necessarily those who are sentenced to death row. Who then are the people likely to be sentenced? How does this happen? And what does this tell us about capital punishment in its current form? Those are great questions. And I noticed that you have great questions about the book because um, I just wanted to acknowledge that Faith, who is doing the interview right now, actually worked on this project in its development and is acknowledged in the book. So talking to you is just a pleasure on many fronts. One of the sort of central questions in the book is who is sentenced to death at trial? And um, what's funny about criminal justice is that there's actually a lack of information about some really like core things. It's often surprising to um, students. So while we know who's on death row, for example, that's really well publicized. One of the problems when I was starting to research this book is that we actually don't know when or where capital trials are happening around the country. Um, and so it's actually kind of a challenge to say who gets sentenced to death as opposed to who gets sentenced to life. The first thing to know is really that when we say that the United States has the death penalty, that's kind of a poor description of the reality. In reality, many states in the United States have not had capital punishment for 100 years or more, getting close to 200 now, <laughs> my age. And abolition of the death penalty has happened across the country, sort of in fits and starts, leaving a collection of states that have the death penalty on the books, many of those of which haven't used it for decades. So in the end, the people who get the death penalty are not distributed um, according to, for example, what the worst crimes are in the United States, because if homicides happen that are terrible, but they happen in places that uh, don't have capital punishment, they are not sentenced to death. So today, um, Texas is still the leader in capital punishment and has been for a very long time. Even during this period when relatively few um, capital sentences are being carried out today after the recession of 2008, et cetera, what's kind of the primary thing here is that geography matters. And you ask then, what does that tell us? 
What we do know from who winds up on death row is that 100% at some times and 95% at other times of the people who wind up on death row are impoverished, didn't have enough money to hire a lawyer. They are overwhelmingly male and uh, disproportionately um, impoverished men of color and disproportionately impoverished men of color who are um, in the first half of their lives, younger men. Now, what this might tell us, and some people argue it does tell us, is that those are the worst types of people in the world. And my book really argues against that way of thinking. In the first half of the book, I really describe how the notion of harm and criminality and indeed homicide is really constructed around this idea that uh, young non-white men are the most dangerous people in our society. And therefore, death row reflects that. This doesn't take into account the kinds of harms done by massive industries like those the sort of economies around toxic chemicals. It doesn't take into the tremendous number of people who die because of the conditions of their work. It doesn't take into consideration those people who die for lack of health care in the United States. So what it really tells us about the death penalty is that it is used for the people that um, the law in part and non-legal factors in the United States imagine to be causing the most harm in society. But that's an extraordinarily limited notion of what causes harm. Readers and listeners like me must be wondering, well, how does the system get away with it, right? So while other domains of justice operations like policing and incarceration have been characterized as broken systems, deeply entrenched with racial and class inequality, Capital punishment is comparatively less criticized, at least by media sources and Supreme Court operations. And as you note in your book, they're actually viewed as punishment done right, right? And a symbol of justice. But a key takeaway that you identify is race and class discrimination, not morality or justice, drive the death penalty. So how does capital punishment save face among the general public, media, and even justice actors? This is such a great question and um, really forces us to look at the interworkings of the law. Capital punishment is one of the most singularly huge body of um, jurisprudence in the United States, meaning that capital punishment has been reformed, challenged, reformed um, during especially the last um, 40 and 50 years in the United States such that this period right now um, doesn't see nearly as much change as was happening in the last 50 years. And that's why, as you said, right now, you don't see a lot of kind of publicity about the unfairness of the death penalty. In part, it's because there's been so much done to try to shore up protections against racism and classism. But what has happened is that, you know, you've had to read Foucault for me in, in class, um, you know, so much of this takes place behind closed doors, much in the same way that um, imprisonment takes place behind closed doors. So instead of thinking of it similar to police encounters in which, um, you know, we can record um, racial violence, right, every day that's happening in the United States, um, death penalty courtrooms and subsequent appellate processes are done really out of the view of the public. Um, I spent two years in death penalty trials. And some of the things I saw were 
unbelievable to me, really. I mean, just, you know, straight, <laughs> um, you know, offensive dehumanization um, that I document in the book. I'm one of many scholars who's looking at the way that race happens in the courtroom. Nicole Van Cleve published a book called Crook County about the Chicago courts not long ago. Other people are writing about courts as white spaces. Um, this is a really vibrant area of um, sociology and, and um, social research methods generally. But so what you get is things that we might call blatant racism, right? Um, but we also get inbuilt um, to these um, trials um, implicit racism in ways that are only observable once you start going to trials and seeing lots of them. One of the ways that this is hidden is that our knowledge of criminal court cases, um, if they are even brought to trial at all, and uh, vastly upward of 90% of criminal convictions in the United States are gotten without a trial. So, you know, let that sink in for a minute, that most cases, there is no record, there's no nothing, there's no trial, there's a plea bargain that happens behind closed doors. For death penalties, there always has to be a trial. And so there always is a record, but that record is a transcript. And what really interested me about this project was how um, just weak and pale transcripts are in comparison to the real thing. I had been in Capitol courtrooms for years um, as part of my work um, before going to graduate school. And I knew firsthand that transcripts don't tell much of a story at all, just the ways in which, uh, you know, so many dynamics of a classroom or a playground or, a um, uh, you know, your home life would be um, really missing if you weren't there. And one of the great strengths of uh, sociology and anthropology is this emphasis on being in the embodied space. So once I um, started really thinking about what goes on, I found that there were patterns of racialized behavior that start in jury selection and, you know, end at sentencing. And uh, as you know, <laughs> there's, there's, many of those that I that I look at at the book, and maybe you can suggest which of those you'd like me to talk about, you know, the victims in the courtroom or jurors, you, you tell me. Gosh, it's, <laughs> it's so hard, it's also captivating. But as Dr. Kaufman just mentioned, in the second part of her book, she really does get to the meat of her observations and takes us, the reader, inside of the courtroom to expose the inner workings of capital trials. And she highlights the variety of actors and the ways they interact within the space to shape these outcomes. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Professor Sarah Kaufman and Class of 18 alumna Faith Deckard. If 
have to choose one, it's got to be the victims, right? That is just so new. So victims and their testimonies are positioned as these defining features of capital trials, right? And you identify their involvement as more than just giving testimony. And studies individuals engage in mourning, which is usually a private act in front of an audience. So in what ways did you observe verbal and nonverbal communication of victims shaping the dynamics of the court proceeding and perhaps ultimately the decision of jurors? Yeah, this was one of the most heartbreaking parts of my observations, and, and there were many, um, to talk a little bit about victims in their role in capital trials and capital sentencing. First of all, the victim in a capital trial is deceased, right? Uh, the person who was murdered can't speak for themselves. So what the courts have gone back and forth over um, through the, the last uh, 60 or so years is whether somebody should speak for the victim in capital sentencing. And this is a, a big controversy in the um, criminal legal world more broadly. Should we have victims uh, influence sentencing? Uh, you know, surely the victims are an important part of the procedure, but is their part appropriate to talk to how much punishment the um, defendant should get? This is more complicated when the defendant can't speak for themselves, right? Um, and what is happening in courts um, around the country today in capital trials is when the, de the defendant is sentenced, part of the procedure is almost always um, reserved for jurors to hear testimony from the loved ones of the defendant. Ostensibly, the law says that it should be in order to demonstrate the harm that the defendant caused, um, which in itself is, is very controversial, right? The harm that a defendant has caused has already been established. It's a homicide. There's no question. This is a person who, if they have been convicted of, of capital murder, and, and they have, if they're at the sentencing stage, they will spend the rest of their life in prison without parole in all states that have the death penalty. Um, and, you know, the tremendous harm of their crime has been established. There's been a trial um, with evidence um, of often really horrific acts. Now, what I find problematic about capital punishment is that at sentencing, those uh, family members and loved ones of the victim who testify are either selected to testify because they are good at communicating in a very public setting about a very troubling part of their lives, yeah? Or they're actually, I've seen them excluded because their inability to communicate. Now, this often has to do with the resources available to victims' families. And it contributes to the reason that one of the biggest inequalities in capital punishment is that people who kill white victims are more often sentenced to death than people who kill non-white victims. And this is a really key mechanism here um, from what I observed. We know that poverty is uh, associated with um, raci racialized minorities, um, but, but more so lawyers judge whether they want to put on um, uh, witnesses. And victims' jobs is to demonstrate their pain in a court. 
Now, if those family members and loved ones have had a terrible experience in the courts in the past, right? If they themselves have been um, uh, victimized uh, by um, violent criminality or they themselves have um, been incarcerated or they themselves have had conflicts with the law, they don't want to be there. And I saw the way this plays out in court. What you get is white wealthier, whiter, wealthier families having really devastatingly painful testimony, which, which I, I saw jurors reach for tissues and cry. And, um, you know, frankly, I cried um, myself to hear a father talk about the loss of his daughter is heartbreaking. But equally heartbreaking is what you don't hear is the mothers who will not testify or aren't chosen to testify by the lawyers who are representing their sons because they know that that person won't be able to put on a, a show that will be as heartbreaking. And I, and I use the term show really um, in the sociological sense. I mean that it is a public act of private emotion. Um, none of these people are you know, making anything up. Um, as I said, it, it was heartbreaking all around. But one of the ways that inequality happens is through these multiple um, social performances and who gets to participate and who's good at them um, and who's, who's left out. So after you walk us through the power of these victims' testimonies, the invisibility of defendants during the trial, and then the uniqueness of jurors' involvement, you conclude by advocating for emotionally intelligent justice. So what does this mean? And in what ways do you foresee it creating a potentially more equitable system? Yeah, um, and this is another conversation again I could, I could and do uh, <laughs> engage in for, for long periods of time. Um, but I wanna say a couple of things. Having just talked about the problems with victims in the courtroom, um, our criminal justice system is unfair, not only to the defendants who are disproportionately and impoverished, young and not white, but also to the victims of those who are um, uh, suffering from the results of, of violence. There is lots of research, and I certainly uh, talked with victims, uh, families myself. You know, there is a prosecutorial team and a defense team who are fighting against one another. And they're fighting about, you know, the most traumatic events of, uh, you know, families' lives. And so they have to really emphasize the pain, the suffering, the conflict, um, and we know from uh, a lot of microsociologies of violence that, that violence happens in complicated ways. And it's all too common, especially among people who know each other, especially in homes. And a lot of the um, kind of retelling of the narratives are rather than finding points of commonality among two families who are suffering, right? And make no doubt about it. Defendants' families are suffering because they're losing a family member, imperfect and potentially violent as they are, yeah. Um, and, and the victim's family has, has, is suffering at the violent loss of their loved ones. The uh, system that we work in creates a tremendous circus, um, and, and pardon me for using that term, um, but the media, the, um, you know, the, the testimony, the, um, 
the space, the time, it creates um, a situation that heightens the potential for tremendous animosity, tremendous dehumanization um, out of an already tragic system. And I do think that this comes from a history of dehumanizing specifically black men and black people in particular, those people who were constructed as black during the colonial era and during slavery. We ramp up the treatment of people in the criminal court and calls for an emotionally intelligent um, justice. Um, some are rooted in the notion of restorative justice, but all are rooted in the notion of focusing on the feelings and the realities, the lived realities of everyone who is involved in these sorts of tragedies. And I am a very strong believer because of the evidence that when people who are placed on opposite sides of the criminal justice system are given the opportunity to make their job, uh, you know, in facing this thing, to see the humanity in one another, it is better for them and better for the world. The criminal justice system does tremendous harm and it's supposed to be, right, dealing with problems of harm. And, and that's really the central paradox that scholars such as myself are, are grappling with as we look at these procedures, processes. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.